spend the next three weeks into three um, probably not very well studied books in the Old Testament uh, and just see where, the, where this leads us. You know, uh, everybody loves a good romance, right? I mean, uh, romantic comedies are one of the best-selling kinds of uh, most popular movies out there. We've got an entire TV channel, the Hallmark Channel, that devotes itself to romance stories and, and so forth. And a number of years ago, when we were living in Nashville, Tennessee, my wife owned an antiquarian bookstore, a, a used bookstore, and we had an entire room devoted to romance novels, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of romance novels, and so they're very popular. When we come to the book of Ruth, one of the things that a lot of people immediately think is this is a good romantic story. You know, it's a story of a fragile young woman who is rescued by some handsome, tall, dark stranger, you know, and, and rides off into the sunset and all is well. And yet, there's more to the book of Ruth than that. Uh, that's really not the thrust of the story. And the reason the book of Ruth is included in our Old Testament is it is a validation of the family tree of King David and subsequently then the, the family tree of the, of the Messiah. And when you look at the, the Scriptures, you, for instance, in the Hebrew Bible, which is the Bible that Jesus, <coughs> Jesus used, <coughs> the book of Ruth is, is excuse me, <coughs> the book of Ruth is found in, in a, a third section. The Hebrew Scriptures are basically in three parts. There's the law, there's the prophets, and there are the writings. And so the book of Ruth in the Hebrew Bible comes in the writing section, and it follows the Song of Solomon. In our Christian Bible, though, it comes after the book of Judges because that's the era in which the book of Ruth takes place, in that era of, of Judges. And again, the book of Ruth is there to set the context for the life of King David. In fact, after Ruth comes First and Second Samuel, who the main character in those two books, uh, of course, are, is uh, David. And Jewish tradition points to the fact that Samuel probably wrote the book of Ruth. And again, to set the context of the family tree for King David and subsequently the, the Messiah. But far from being a story of romance and, and love, really, this is a story of what I would call bad decisions, disobedience to God, whether intentional or, or uh, unintentional, and of God's gracious redemption out of those bad choices. Uh, the book, as we get into it, you're going to find that the book of Ruth is arranged kind of in four acts. It's kind of a play in, in four different acts. And so uh, it starts with kind of a low, depressing kind of an act where it sets the stage and it's gloomy and all that. And it ends in a glorious, wonderful, exciting uh, conclusion by the time you get to act number four. So let's jump into it. And we're going to look at each chapter as an act in this drama. The first uh, chapter is Act 1, and that's Wrong Decisions in a Time of Turmoil. And so this Act 1 begins with these ominous words, <coughs> excuse me, in Ruth uh, 1, and just the very first part of verse 1. It says, In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. Now, the, the time of the judges, you know, that was the people of Israel come into, into the promised land, and then this period of the judges happened before the period of the kings took place. Well, the time of the judges is succinctly described 
in these words from the book of Judges that said this, Judges 17, 6. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. So this was an age of moral chaos in the land. And there was no central authority in the nation of Israel that was guiding the people to stay true to Jehovah God. And so it says they did whatever they wanted to. Idolatry and immorality uh, reigned in that day and time. Again, Judges chapter 2 and verse 10. After that generation, and that's the generation who had come into Israel, uh, excuse me, into the promised land with Joshua. It says, after that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. So in the middle of this chaos, we're introduced now to a family from Bethlehem. Look at the last part of verse 1. So a man went up, uh, a man from Bethlehem of Judea left his home and went to live in the land and uh, the country of Moab, taking his wife and his two sons with him. So immediately what we're going to see is there's going to be a number of bad choices that are made, um, as well as, you know, disobedience toward God. And what we need to realize is that all of these choices they're going to make are steps away from God's will. So picking up there again in in the next verse, in verse 2, the man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. They had two sons. They were named Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites. That's a family within the, the tribe of Judah. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. So there's some bad choices they were making. The very first bad choice they made was this move to Moab. This was a bad choice, you see, because Moab was the enemy of Israel. Uh, Moab was a neighboring country on the east side of the, of the Dead Sea. And these, uh, native, these excuse me, the, the nation of Moab were descendants from the incestuous relationship of Lot and his firstborn daughter. And not only that, Moab had harassed the Israelites as they had approached the promised land, had do, done all sorts of things to harass them. They had, for instance, had uh, hired Balaam, who was a prophet, to come and pronounce uh, a curse over Israel. Of course, God wouldn't have let him pronounce the curse. Not only that, but um, they also, the women of Moab, enticed the men of Israel, and they cavorted and, and had all sorts of sexual relationships. And the bottom line is, I mean, in the book of Deuteronomy, God said, nobody from Moab will ever come into my temple. The bottom line is Moab was bad news. And here is this family moving into the heart of enemy territory. But a second disobedience or a second bad choice that they made was they married outside of Israel. Ruth chapter 1 verse 4. The two sons married Moabite women. Now, marrying anybody who wasn't an Israelite was strictly prohibited by God. It was that kind of fraternization that, had, you know, with the, the women of Moab that had led to the slaughter of, of hundreds of the men of Israel under the orders of, of, um, of Moses uh, in, in Numbers chapter 25. 
<clears throat> and so they were against God's law there. Then a third disobedience or a third wrong choice was this lack of trust in God's care. Uh, you know, famines were frequently a sign of God's judgment on the people. And yet, every time a famine happened, those who remained faithful to God, God took care of them. God, God watched over them and provided for them. And yet, here they are, they're leaving Bethlehem to escape the famine. And I want you to see something that really is significant here. Uh, Ele uh, Elimelech, Elimelech, I'll get his name right, <coughs> and his family, they were from Bethlehem in Judah. And the meaning of that name, Bethlehem Judah, is quite interesting. Bethlehem means house of bread. And Judah means praise. So that's where Elimelech and his family lived. They lived in the house of bread and praise. And so here he is. He's living in this house of bread and praise. But what does he do? He goes to sojourn in the country of Moab, which, according to Psalm 108, verse 9, was called God's washbowl. In fact, another biblical scholar paraphrases it and calls it Moab my garbage can. Now think about this. You see what's happening here? The Hebrew, this Hebrew family is leaving the house of bread and praise to go and to live in the garbage can. It was a lack of trust in God. Uh, and then another thing, they failed to really represent well the name of God. Uh, names in biblical era were very important. They were, they were crucial. Names carried a lot of weight. They carried person's character or his power, his position in life. So they were very meaningful. And when you look at verse 2, it said the man's name was Elimelech and his wife is Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion. Elimelech means my God is king. What a neat name. I mean, think about it. Think of the witness he gave wherever he went, you know. Um, you didn't just call him Elimelech like we would do here in, in, English, in, in the English language. Instead, they would say, good morning, my God is king. Uh, think about that. What a great name. What a witness they had. It's too bad, though, to have a name like that and then run off to the land of Moab, acting as if God is not king, that God is not in control, that, that God the king is not going to take care of him. So think about it. Elimelech was walking by sight and not by faith. He went on the outward appearance. He didn't listen to the inner promptings and leadership of God's Holy Spirit. And Elimelech majored on the physical and not on the spiritual. He would rather fill his stomach than live to please God. And, and in addition to that, Elimelech honored the enemy and not the Lord. I mean, he had more confidence that the Moabites would rescue him than he did that the Lord God would rescue him. How many times do we do the same thing? We put our faith in things that really don't matter instead of putting our trust in God. Um, here's the problem, though, of these bad choices that they make, bad choices that we make, okay? They always lead to worse conditions, don't they? Uh, that was true as far as this family was concerned. Look at verse 3. Then Elimelech died. And Naomi was left with her two sons. And that might have been all right. I mean, you know, after all, she had two sons left to care for her and to support her. Unfortunately, look at the names of these two sons, Malon and Kilion. 
Malon in Hebrew means unhealthy. And Kilion means puny. Doesn't bode well at all for Naomi, does it? Uh, you know? And so in verse 4 it says, These two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, the other a woman named Ruth. But about 10 years later, both Malon and uh, Kilion died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. And, and you and I might think, well, maybe, you know, this accumulated bad decisions, this disobedience to God uh, may have resulted in God's judgment against Naomi. Well, Naomi seems to think that because she's going to make some re replies or some, some statements that's similar to that in the rest of the story. Listen, for instance, when she was trying to send her, she'd made the decision, she's going back to Bethlehem, and she's telling her two daughters-in-law they need to go back to their parents because it's not going to bode well for her. Listen to the anguish in her voice in, in verse 13. Uh, just the last part, it says, she said to them, things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. See, act one in this drama of consequences and redemption is going to end on a very sour note. Um, arriving back in, in um, Bethlehem, Naomi, whose name, by the way, meant pleasant, she told the women of the town that her name was no longer pleasant, but now was Mara, or bitter, because the Lord had made life bitter for her. In fact, she says that God brought her home empty. So this bitterness and this, this emptiness would be compounded by the fact that these two widows, Ruth and Naomi, they had no means of making money to support themselves. And it isn't it ironic that just like Naomi sometimes when you and I make bad choices and consequences come from those choices, we start blaming God for it? They're not any different than we are if you think about it. Let's look at act number two. And that's in chapter 2, Glimpses of Hope. Ruth chapter 2 and verse 1. Now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. So verse 1 gives to us just a glimpse, just a fleeting introduction to this man, a relative by the name of Boaz. Uh, his very name means, uh, in him is strength. Okay? And it's just a glimpse of this one who possibly could bring hope into this dark situation but it's just a glimpse and then the the chapter the the act chapter uh, act number two moves back to the plight of naomi and her daughter-in-law ruth uh, ruth is called a moabite five different times in the four chapters of this book and it really shows that she indeed was a stranger sojourning in a strange land ruth is the last name i want to identify because hers is a very fitting name it means friend or companion. And she was really the support that Naomi needed in her bitterness. And a, a key thought that, you know, that we can glean from this story almost immediately is that Ruth had become a follower of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Uh, remember what she said to her mother-in-law back in chapter 1? Your God shall be my God. So Ruth's conversion is really an evidence of the sovereign grace of God. And, and grace kind of permeates this whole book because Ruth was not born among the people of God. Um, you know, instead, she became a follower of God depending on God's grace for her, which is the way all of us have to do. 
We, become in, we come into relationship with God through his grace. So everything within her and everything around her presented obstacles to her faith. And yet she trusted the God of Israel. Her background was against her. She was from Moab, <clears throat> a country that worshipped the god Chemosh, who, uh, you know, enjoyed animal, I mean, uh, human sacrifices given to him, who promoted and encouraged immorality. And so her circumstances were against her as well. Uh, they could have made her bitter against the God of Israel. Her father-in-law died, her husband died, her brother-in-law died, and now she's left a widow without any support at all. And she's in a strange land. She doesn't know these people. Doesn't really perhaps know the language of the, of the era, of, of the day. And the thought might have crossed her mind, if this is the way Jehovah treats his people, then why would I want to trust him? And yet she deliberately chose to become a follower of, of God. We learn more of her character in verse 2 there in chapter 2, where it says, One day Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, All right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth was industrious. And also, I think she sensed her responsibility toward her mother-in-law, Naomi, to, to care for her. The time of year that this takes place was in the barley and wheat harvest. That would be April and, or May. And uh, the barley would be standing in the field or the wheat would be standing in the field. And the harvesters would come through with hand sickles and they would cut them down. That was usually the male servants who did that. And then they would be followed by the female servants who would gather the cut grain and wrap it into sheaths. And then there would be a third group that would follow that would kind of glean up and pick up any that was left on the ground. Yet in the book of Leviticus, God's people had been told that when they, when they harvested their field, they were to leave some of the, the, the leftovers on the ground for the poor, the needy, to be able to come and to, uh, to gather these, uh, these uh, you know, what was left over. And so in Ruth chapter 2, again, verse 2, one day the Moabite, Naomi, uh, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go into the harvest, uh, into the fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. And Naomi replied, all right, my daughter, go ahead. <clears throat> so here is Ruth, and she's going to, to, to harvest in the field to scrounge up enough for them to live on. Verse 3 really points to the providence of God. The text says, as it, quote, happened, Ruth found herself in the field of Boaz. <clears throat> the, the Hebrew wording in that verse really points out that it's more than just a coincidence that she ended up in, in uh, Boaz's field. Uh, the wording uh, carries kind of repetition of word. By chance, she chanced, which is a Hebrew way of saying this was the hand of God leading her to that field. And in the text, we're going to learn that Boaz is going to uh, take the initiative to provide a little extra for Ruth, <coughs> allowing her to eat the food of the, of the workers, allowing her to drink of their water, and uh, also telling his workers, leave a little extra so she can, she can gather it. And then telling her, stay and work every day in my field so that you will be protected. So Acts, Acts chapter, I mean, Act 2 reaches the climax in what I think is the key verse of the entire book. Ruth has returned to Naomi. She showed her all that she has gathered. 
and uh, she tells Naomi of the attention that Boaz has, has given to her. And Naomi's response is found there in verse 20 when it says, The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, That man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Not only is this a key verse, but this is the key concept of the whole, ver whole book, the kinsman redeemer. The Hebrew word is the word goel, G-O-E-L. And uh, sometimes it's just simply translated as kinsman. But it comes from a root word which means to redeem, to buy back. Um, and uh, the goel among the Hebrews was the nearest male relative who was still alive. And there were certain important obligations that the Goel was to carry out in relation to, to his family. First of all, if anyone uh, out of poverty sold their land to pay off their indebtedness, it was the Goel's duty to buy that land back for them. Or if a relative sold himself into slavery, the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, would buy them back to, into freedom. Uh, second, the Goel was to be the avenger of blood. If if somebody was murdered, it was the Goel's duty to avenge that murder. And then a third thought, a third duty was this, that he would be the one who would marry the deceased brother if the, the wife was childless so that he could bring offspring into the world in the brother's name. In other words, a brother would die without a son, and the law directed that the brother uh, would go and father a child by that widow to honor the name of the dead loved one, the dead brother. And that living brother would be the Goel, who would redeem the family name. Now, with that understanding, let's leave Act 2, and let's move into Act 3 and Act 4, where we're going to see this central theme of redemption playing, playing itself out. <clears throat> so Act 3 is Chapter 3, Seeking Redemption. Uh, Ruth 3, beginning at verse 1. One day Naomi said to Ruth, My daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he has been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now do as I tell you. Take a bath, put on perfume, and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. Uh-oh. I know what you're thinking. That's that part in the romance novel where, um, uh, uh, not so, okay? <laughs> not so. It's not at all what you think. The instructions of Naomi to Ruth appear to be forward here, but... Folks, the moral integrity of Ruth and Boaz has not, is never in doubt. Instead, what this is, this is a direct appeal to the kinsman-redeemer obligation of Boaz. Uh, Ruth's actions are a request for marriage. That's what this is. And look how Boaz re replied in verse 9. Who are you, Boaz asked. I am your servant, Ruth. She replied, it's dark. He didn't know who she was. You know, somebody laying at his feet, okay? And look what she says. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. <clears throat> this idea of spreading the cover, uh, 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 spreading the corner of your cover over me, 
That is a request for marriage. In fact, in some places in the Middle East, that's still the custom that's used even to this day. The, the picture of covering is for protection. And it plays very nicely with Boaz's statement when he first met uh, Ruth back in chapter 2 and verse 12 when he said this, May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wing you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you've done. <clears throat> you see, it's a picture of protection. And here is Ruth asking Boaz for protection. And I think by her very actions, Boaz is vividly reminded that he has an obligation to protect her and to protect Naomi as well. And so how did he respond? Look at verse 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. You are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before. For you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. Now don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what's necessary for everyone in town knows that you're a virtuous woman. So Act 3, <coughs> excuse me, is going to close with Ruth reporting back to Naomi. And in her wisdom, Naomi responds and says, Just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. The man won't rest until he settles things today. And at last now, the romance is really beginning. I mean, think about it. Boaz is now a man on a mission. There's only one problem here. And isn't that typical in romance novels? You know, boy meets girl, they fall in love, they want to be together, and then some problem, some issue arises, and the rest of the book or the rest of the movie is trying to resolve that problem. The, the problem is that there is a closer blood relative to Naomi and Ruth than, than Boaz is. So how's this going to resolve? Well, let's look at Act 4 to see the conclusion. Act 4 is chapter 4, meaning redeemed. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so first thing in the morning here, um, Boaz is at the city gate. That's where they, yes, where they, um, where they conducted city business. And he's a man on a mission here. And uh, he's looking for that nearer relative to talk to him. Thank you so much. So he's looking for this, this near relative. Look at verse 3 and 4. Because uh, he spots him and he invites him to join the gathering at the city gate. And in verse 3 we read this. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, You know Naomi who came back from Moab. She is selling the land that belongs to our relative Elimelech. Excuse me. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I'm next in line to redeem it after you. The man replied, all right, I'll redeem it. You notice Boaz left out the part about Ruth, didn't he? He's setting this guy up. All right, look at verse 5. Then Boaz told him, of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry out her husband's name and keep the land in the family. At that part, this relative balks and says, no, I, I can't do it. So in, in verse 7, we read this. He, he gives the right of redemption on to Boaz. Verse 7 says, now in those days, it was the custom in Israel for anyone transferring a right of purchase 
to remove his sandal and hand it to the other party. This public, publicly validated the transaction. So the other family redeemer drew off his sandal as he said to Boaz, you buy the land. That's an interesting custom. But I think there's more to it than there. Because if you go back into the law of Moses, uh, there's some instructions concerning a, a family redeemer, a goel, who refuses to marry the widow of a, of a near relative. What, what happens there? Look at Deuteronomy, or listen to Deuteronomy 25, beginning at verse 8. The elders of the town will summon that, that man and talk with him. And if he still refuses and says, I don't want to marry her, the widow must walk over to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal from his foot, and spit in his face. Then she must declare, this is what happens to a man who refuses to provide his brother with children. Ever afterward in Israel, his family will be referred to as the family of the man whose sandal was pulled off. Now think with me about this. From this day forward, Boaz is going to be known as the husband of Ruth and the great-grandfather of King David. And this other relative is going to be known from that day on as the man whose sandal was pulled off. Isn't that ironic? Great story. So look at Ruth chapter uh, 4 and verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth into his home, and she became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant. She gave birth to a son. So this whole tale of wrong choices and grace and redemption is going to close with those same women to whom Naomi had complained and said, my name is Mara, bitterness, and I'm empty. And now they're going to be praising Naomi. Uh, she had complained of being bitter and being empty, and now they're going to praise her for, for her joy and for the fullness that God has given to her. Look at verse 14. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. See, redemption came for Ruth and Naomi in the form of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. And out of those bad choices that had been made, we see God's hand now bringing redemption. Some of you here today have made some bad choices in life. Maybe you're living with the consequences of those bad choices. But what I want you to know is bad choices don't have to be the end because we too have a kinsman redeemer. His name is Jesus Christ. He is one of us. He's bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And when whatever we do, those bad choices we make, whether we, you know, we intentionally disobey, when we, you know, we're going to do it our way regardless of the consequences, he can come and he can redeem us out of that destruction. That's why he came. In fact, Paul said this in Ephesians 1, 7, he is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom. That's what it means to redeem, to purchase our freedom with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, and forgive us our sins. See, this theme of redemption is central to the whole New Testament understanding of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He redeemed us. That is, he bought us back out of destruction. He bought us back out of slavery to sin and, and death and to Satan. And as a result, we've been set right with God. We've been justified, set into a right relationship with God. Uh, 
you know, and the wrath of God against the sin in our life, the judgment of God has been appeased. That's, that's propitiation. And so as the women said to Naomi, so you and I can say just as well, praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for me and my family. Folks, don't wallow in your bad choices. Instead, embrace Jesus Christ as your kinsman redeemer. Let's pray. Father, to you and to you alone we look and praise your holy name. Thank you for your scripture. Thank you that we can move from wrong choices to second chances and even beyond. In your name we pray, amen.